0: Tonight we are in 1 Peter. So, jumping back into our study, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Make our way there, 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you were with us last week, you remember that uh, in our exposition of 1 Peter, working through it, verse by verse, we turned a corner in the letter. Uh, We entered into this, really, the second major section in Peter's letter. And that began in chapter 2. Verse 11. But up to that point, you know, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 11, all the way before that, Peter's been helping the church, helping us to understand and appreciate who we are. That was really his goal in that first part of that letter. We are God's chosen people. We're, We're God's elect, he says. And he really unpacks that in the first part of the letter. We don't deserve this privilege. We're a people that have been chosen by him, restored to God, and most importantly destined to inherit the new creation that's coming in Christ's return. That's who we are. Might not look like it now, but that's who we are according to Peter. We've got to know that. But last week he, we we turned the corner and we ventured into really part 2 of the letter. And we saw, okay, if that's true about us, if we're God's chosen people, privileged If we're God's own elect people, a people who are being restored to God, Peter helps us see that this restoration isn't fully complete yet. Right, We're still in a land that we don't belong, and we're still exiles here on earth. It's kind of the other other side of this. We're elect, yes, but we're also exiles here. We've been chosen by God out of this world, which means that now this world is not our home, or at least not yet. One day it will be, when Christ returns and we help him restore it. But until then, we're exiles. And in the second part of the letter, Peter helps us see how we should live while we're here in exile. or How we should live as exiles, we could say. So we're calling these sermons, as we walk, walk through them, uh, Life in Exile. Um, and we saw last week, we really have two overarching responsibilities so there's two kind of basic responsibilities he outlines in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that governs the rest of this section of what we're calling life, life in the exile, how we should live as exiles on earth. And when you, when you use this language, exile, sojourner, we don't belong here, you know, we're tempted to think that our greatest enemy is that unbelieving world around us that we're exiles in. Like the, in their day, the oppressive Roman Empire, or the deep state, or cruel slave masters, or maybe in our day bosses who hate Christ, or harsh husbands, unbelieving family members, people in the community that want to see us go away, or even Satan himself. These are serious threats, for sure, and Peter's going to address them in the letter, but first, he points out that our greatest threat as exiles, our greatest danger to living faithfully as God's elect people is not outside us, but is within us. Even though we've been restored to God, there's still a loyalty war going on within us. And Peter says we have to abstain from those passions of the flesh. That's that first overarching responsibility that we looked at last week. We have to abstain from what he calls the passions of the flesh. We are in a war... A war for our souls, and it is not with Rome, or Babylon, or Lynchburg. It's with our own passions, our old cravings for control, our old anxieties, our old lusts, our old depressive feelings, our old resentments, the list goes on and on. Those are the passions of the flesh. The old you. We've got to resist them, Peter says. We have to abstain from these passions, make war on them. We're going to be faithful in exile. That's number one. And that's not all he says. He also says there's a positive pursuit, a noble life to be lived as these exiles. Peter wants God's chosen people to resemble her messianic king. Right? Our king overcame by doing good and dying for his enemies, not by trying to overthrow them politically or Christianize institutions. And he calls us to do the same, to proactively do good to our enemies. By seeking the welfare of Babylon, we might say. By living as priests among the Gentiles and praying for their conversions. Peter knows that God will use our good works to bring other unbelievers to himself. So that on the day that Christ returns, we saw last week, on his day of visitation, other people, other unbelievers, might be swept up into this restoration now. All right, so they see our good works, now they're swept up into the restoration, and then they end up then glorifying the Lord for his mercy when he returns. So that was all last week. Two overarching responsibilities. But tonight, Peter's going to start applying these instructions even further. He's going to start pressing them down. He's going to answer questions like this. What does it look like to battle our passions and seek to do good in this oppressive world? Remember, we're exiles, and that means that the land that we're living in does not treat, does not they don't like us that much, okay? And that means we won't get fair treatment here, or we shouldn't expect to get fair treatment here. Governments will oppress us, at least eventually. Bosses will likely mistreat us at times. Unbelieving families won't understand us. They'll view us as suspect or maybe even disloyal because we've betrayed our upbringing or our culture. And when we are mistreated, When our rights are taken away, Peter knows that our fleshly desires will rear their ugly heads and we'll be tempted to retaliate. We'll be tempted to say things like, don't tread on me. Take matters into our own hands. To give our bosses a piece of our mind. To put that unbelieving husband in his place. Or maybe we'll be tempted to fear tempted to feel dominated and discouraged and then isolate in self-pity as the the pressures increase. But Peter knows the temptations that we face as exiles here, and so he keeps on applying these instructions to the concrete situations that his readers faced then and that we still face today. And he starts with a situation that was probably one of their greatest temptations. How they relate to the oppressive Roman Empire. And what a challenge that must have been. Depending on your temperament, as a believer, (laughs) you might be ready to overthrow these pagans, right? Like Jesus' own disciples were at the beginning of of Christ's ministry, and really throughout the the earthly ministry of the Lord. Civic loyalty demanded that the Roman emperor be worshipped. It's like part of your civic duty. The Romans, if they knew about Jesus, they viewed him with contempt as a weak Jewish man who had been executed by them. Many viewed Christians as superstitious, believing in a new and seditious religion, drinking blood and eating the body of their king, incestuously loving their brothers and sisters. So things weren't easy for these Christians in the empire. And for some of these believers, especially if they were you know, the, the, the fighter type, Uh, they might be tempted to resent the government. Since Christ was raised and enthroned in heaven as the true king over all the kings of the earth, Psalm 2, they might think they have a license to rebel, right? Let's crush them with a rod of iron. They might think they have a license to overthrow the Roman state, to take matters into their own hands. And I'm sure that Peter, the writer of this letter, understood the sentiment. Remember Peter? He too at one time was ready, to, was ready and he was eager to overthrow the Roman deep state. He was ready to help Christ establish the promised Davidic kingdom on earth. But Peter had learned. Peter had learned that the time for overthrow is not now. Overthrow is coming. In a glorious way, it's coming. And it it's coming though when the king returns. Now, the messianic king is offering, he's offering pardon to rebellious creatures, to the rebellious nations and the kings that lead them. He's using his restored people to get that message to them and to model for them what his kingdom is like. It's a kingdom of the most noble and the most glorious kinds of people. And So in our text tonight, Peter calls on the church, not to rebel against the government, but to submit to it. Not to retaliate with vengeance or to withdraw in fear, but to proactively do good. And he says that's part of our life here is exile. Peter wants us to be a people that are devoted to the good of the nation that we live in, even seeking the welfare of an evil city like Babylon, the city of our exile. He wants us to submit to the government. Now I know that raises lots of questions. We'll talk about some of those in a minute, but for now, let's just read the text. Pick it up in verse 13. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, anytime we read a text like this, uh, especially for us Americans, questions immediately pop up, don't they? Right, like, how far do we need to submit? Um, where's the line? Or isn't there a difference between the Roman Empire and our constitutional republic in America? Isn't the Constitution king here? What happens if our elected officials don't respect the Constitution or the Bill of Rights when they've sworn an oath to uphold those things? What does it look like to actually be a good citizen in the situation we're living in right now where our democracy is being actively undermined and there's so much division between the parties? These questions were raised afresh for us during those COVID years, weren't they? These, uh, these texts were a uh, hot topic, at least in my circles. Many churches felt the effects. And sadly, many of you have told me stories about how your home churches split around these issues. How to respond to the governing authorities, how to respond to lockdowns, how to respond to vaccine mandates, the list goes on and on, right? And these are complex questions for sure It requires wisdom and just extreme wisdom to navigate some of these pieces. And I'm going to try to address some of those questions. It's not going to be a comprehensive message or you need a series on this. But I'll I'll try to address some of these as we go tonight. And, you know, for sure, the governments are different, okay? So the Roman Empire is different from our, our American Constitutional Republic, for sure. But one of the major points I want to make is that regardless of the kind of government we live under, we Christians are still in exile. You tracking? Regardless, whether you're living under a Chinese totalitarianism or Western democracy, we both, Chinese Christians and American Christians, are still, according to Peter, in exile. As good as Western civilization might be, or at least as good as it used to be, and as much as we might want to fight for it and see it revived, we have to remember that most fundamentally we are exiled. And that there is something even more important to fight for. And that is glorifying God, living radically as God's people, doing good to our enemies. Our constitutional republic isn't even the best form of government. We're waiting on a monarchy. The monarchy. His monarchy. Christ's monarchy to be established on the earth. Because when the king comes and sets up his kingdom on earth and gives us authority over the nations, the tables will be turned. And that's what we're living for. That government. Not this one. We're not living for the restoration of America, as good as that would be from a human standpoint. I mean, I pray for it. But we are living for the full restoration of Christ's kingdom on earth. And that will happen when he comes. Now is the time for multiplying the kingdom citizens as we wait. And so to that end, Peter calls on the church to submit to pagan government. And just to be clear, when he says submit, he's calling on the church to obey the pagan government. That's what submission means. I read some others that try to water that down and make it not, that's what it means, okay? You can try to get around it, but it's calling us to obey. To voluntarily bring yourself under the authority of the government and to do what they say. Peter goes on to flesh out this command and even give several others related to it. And the rest of what he says here helps qualify and flesh out what he means and what he does not mean when it, relates, when it comes to how we relate to the government. All right. So for the rest of our time tonight, I want to point out six characteristics of, a, of how a Christian should submit to the government. Six characteristics of, of really Christian submission to government. Peter's going to qualify this command, elaborate it, qualify it, tell us why. He's going to unpack it. I think it would be really encouraging for you. Okay? So we could kind of got our thesis statement. A Christian's got submission to government, you know, is dot da. It's kind of where we're going. We're going to look at six of these. And the first, first thing we could say here is that a Christian submission to government is comprehensive in its scope. It's comprehensive in its scope. Listen to the language, afresh in verse 13. He says, "Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor who is supreme, or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good." It's comprehensive. This submission, right? And what I mean by that is our, our it includes every human institution. It includes both emperors and governors. So, so let's unpack. You know, this this idea is comprehensive. We can't kind of bifurcate and decide, I'm going to obey this one or not that one. First, Peter tells us to be subject to every human institution, he says. And that's the way the ESV translates it, and I think the NASB translates it that way as well, to every every human institution. But literally, he says, we're to be subject to every human creation. Every human creation. Kind of a weird way to say it. Hmm. I say it that way talking about the government. Well, I think he says it that way because he's talking about more than the government. Okay? Not just the government, although the government's included, but he's talking about all the other human authorities, like the authority of masters over slaves. He's going to talk about that in a minute. He's going to talk about authority of husbands over wives and how wives bring themselves under, slaves bring themselves under their masters, wives bring themselves under their husbands. These are human creations, we might say. Not, mean, not implying that God didn't institute government or marriage. He obviously didn't institute slavery. But these are human creations, meaning uh, they're part of the old earth. But he wants the church to live submissively in all of these sort of old creation structures. And the first structure he addresses is the government. He says we're to submit comprehensively to the government. And he makes that point. He makes that clear when he says we're to submit to both the emperor, the king, and to the governors that that the emperor sends. So by drawing out these specific offices, he's talking about submitting to the entire leadership structure of the Roman Empire. Peter's point is that from the top down, from the emperor to those he sends on his behalf, the governors, that our response should be one of submission to all those governing authorities. So, in our context, we can't just say, you know, well, I don't like President Biden, you know, or the Supreme Court's decisions, so I'm not going to submit to those. Uh, I'm only accountable to Lynchburg City Council you know, or the Republican governor of Virginia or whatever it is. Peter's point is that from the top down, we should work to live submissively and obedient to all the governing authority. But then that raises questions, right? Like, right. time out. What happens? when the government itself doesn't agree. Like, what does the mission look like then? And you think, what? Give me an example. Well, just this week, uh, we talked about this last night. Just this week, we had a, a fresh example of how complex things can get in this regard in our constitutional republic. Uh, I'm sure you know, but we have a tremendous problem uh, in, at our southern border. Uh, thousands of people every day are flooding into the United States uh, And so on the one hand, it is a threat to national security. It's It's an overwhelming problem for the people that are living in those border states and especially those cities, especially in Texas. But on the other hand, it's also becoming quite the humanitarian crisis. And the state government of Texas, as I understand it, so I'm not like a civics guy and I don't stay up on these things, but the state government of Texas and the federal government are at odds Right, you guys read about this? Some pretty historic stuff going down right now. President Biden wants them to remove all the razor wire they put up to block people from coming in, but Texas has refused. They've made multiple appeals, and all those appeals went to the Supreme Court, ultimately. But again, as I understand it, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of giving President Biden the authority to tell Texas what to do. And then just this week, the Texas governor defied in writing the federal government. So we're not going to do it. You're violating the Constitution. So who do you obey? You obey the president? It's backed by the Supreme Court, who would say is the interpretive authority of the Constitution? Or you obey your governor? If you work for the Texas Border Patrol and you were ordered by the governor to put up more wire, but the federal government was standing there telling you to take it down. Who would you obey? How would you be faithful to what Peter's saying? That's a tough one, okay? I'm not standing here up here as the guru. <laughs> That's hard. For starters, I would be very slow to speak into this issue, and I would be very quick to defer to the conscience of the person in that situation, that border patrol officer, the Christian border patrol officer. I would be quick to defer to the burden of his conscience. Because the situations like that are complex. A lot of moving parts. And so, you know, it's, it's very easy to stand outside of the situation, way apart from the situation, and judge the, the situation when it's not super clear what they should do. And a lot of that going on among the churches in COVID. But I do think, though, that some other principles in this passage may come to bear in a complex situation like this might give us a little more clarity. So let's keep on moving, and we'll keep this scenario kind of on, on our one of our burners here. We'll keep the scenario going, and we'll kind of keep applying some of these things that we're, we're taught here from Peter to that situation. All right? Notice, second, that this obedience to the government is not ultimately for the government's sake, or even for our sake, or even our children's sakes, but it is for Christ's sake. Our submission, our submissive attitude, The way we're working to obey a pagan government is not for the government's sake, not for our sake, but for Christ's sake. So Peter says here in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject, submit for his sake. So what's he getting at here? Well, ultimately, the Lord Jesus wants us to live submissively to the governing authorities and not to rebel against them, to show them that we're not a subversive people. That's not who we are. We're not subversive, and that brings glory to Christ, so our obedience is for His sake. But, okay, so how? How does it bring glory to Christ when we obey the government? Well, for starters, when we're submissive, and especially when we're submissive to a government that is oppressing us, it shows unbelievers what this kingdom and its king are like. Our king is one who serves, and so do his people. Our king did not demand his rights, but willingly gave them up to redeem his enemies. And that was us, by the way, every one of us, enemy category. And now he wants us to pay that forward and to live similarly. Like I said, one day we're going to reign with him, We're going to mediate His justice to the nations. And everyone who persecuted the church will get what they deserve on that day. But today, we are suffering with Him. Today, we are laying our lives down so that our enemies might come to know the Christ. Might come to know the Messianic King and escape the wrath that's coming to them according to Psalm 2. Today is the day to take refuge in the Son. Kiss the sun, lest his wrath is quickly kindled. Our motive when we obey the government is that Christ is magnified for his mercy. So when it comes to our example about the border patrol officer, we could ask this simple question, okay? What would most glorify Christ in this situation? What would bring him the maximum glory here? Now again, that's probably only something that he could answer. And even then, he might not be able to answer that question. Still might be a little murky for him well, go if I got this way or go if I got that way. But even just asking the question puts Christ at the center of it, right? It puts Christ at the, at the, at the focal point of this guy's actions and what he's going to try to do. It doesn't put us at the focal point. doesn't put our kids at the focal point. doesn't put our government at the focal point. Put Christ at the focal point, right? And that's a great, great question to kind of apply in these dicey situations because we obey the government. However, we're doing that. It's got to be for Christ's sake. But I think this third principle, as we're moving along here, might give us even more clarity in our case study. So let's move forward here to our our third characteristic of Christian submission. We can say it like this, Christian submission includes proactively doing good. It includes proactively doing good, number three. And you'll hear this sort of laced, laced throughout what I'm about to read. So he calls us to be subject to the emperor or to governors, verse 14. And these governors are described as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who, notice it, do good. For this is the will of God that, notice it, Notice this, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, The governors are coming and they're coming to praise people who do good. And then Peter's saying, you should be people that are doing good, and thus putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what's he talking about here? The point here is that our our submission isn't just a go-along-to-get-along kind of attitude. It comes with a deep desire to do good to the citizens of that nation. And this kind of submission is one that is proactive in doing good. So let me show you kind of where I'm, where I'm getting this from. Notice first that when Peter calls us to submit to the king and his governors, he says that these governors are sent by the king to punish the evildoer and praise those who do good. So do you see that? Then he goes on to say that it's God's will that we silence the accusations against us by the good that we do. So what is happening here? What's going on? Let me build out the situation for you. So if you remember back to last week, when we saw that the unbelievers around us will sometimes start hurling false accusations at us. Remember that? they're in, in the unbelieving world, they don't like us. They start throwing accusations at us, slandering us. And like I said, in the first century, these Christians were being accused of being cannibals because they ate Christ's body and drank Christ's blood. They were also accused of incest because the husbands and wives called each other brother and sister. They were accused of sedition because they followed another king other than the emperor. And all those were false accusations coming at Christians. And what Peter's saying is that our lives should be so submissive and full of good works that when the government official comes knocking, when that governor comes knocking, he's sent by the emperor, comes knocking at your door in response to the accusations that they've heard about you, what they find is a normal, gracious, law-abiding, good-working citizen. Submissive person, not a seditious person. Right? The person, they, they come to the door, and like, no. Like, we love the emperor. We, we pray for the emperor. You know, he's not going to worship the emperor, but we pray. I mean, yeah, we want to do good. We pay all our taxes. We're we try to be good neighbors. Ask our neighbors if they have problems with us. Go to the neighbors. No, no, it was great. Shovel my driveway the other day. Just, I do know what they did in Roman Empire. Shovel my horse poop. I don't know but good, they're, they're good neighbors. That should be the reputation, Peter says. And what will typically happen? Governors stand there and say they're cannibals. They're not cannibals, you know? So they're incestuous, See, they're not related, you know? These look like normal people. In fact, these people look a lot better than, you know, the pagan guy over there that's worshiping all these false gods—like he, they're—they're they're, these are noble citizens of the Roman Empire. The government will see those good works, and they will exonerate the Christian. It will silence the ignorance of foolish people in the community; those people who slandered them in the first place. That's what Peter's saying. This is God's will, says Peter. That's what God wants for them to be quiet. Remember, do not have a word to say about Christians that will stick. It's God's will that we silence the ignorant by the overwhelming testimony of our good works. By the overwhelming testimony that we are careful to obey the laws of the land and selflessly serve its citizens. Now this, just a quick illustration here. This happened one time in our history at Timberlake. You've probably heard it, been around, you've probably heard this. But there was a situation where some people started slandering our school um, because we were essentially, in their words, like oppressing a little girl who wanted to be a boy. And the story went viral, and for a few days there, the fire was burning hot in the media. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. Um, but the pastors here and the TCS administration just handled themselves with care. They loved that little girl through the process. And they, they had a lot of evidence that they could have released that would have, in the end, made that little girl's life a lot harder. They would have just kind of proven themselves, but they they kind of they fell on the sword, so to speak. They chose to sit on that evidence for her sake. They took the heat, and then, but when it was when this issue was investigated, the government actually exonerated the church and the school because they acted with, you know, with goodness and and above reproach in all these in all these areas. And it put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people in our community and in the. The world really—it was kind of coming after, coming after the church and school. This is an illustration, you know, kind of in real time of, of how something like this happens, of how you can kind of silence the ignorant accusations of folks if your life is full of integrity and good works and good for the community. Now, I say this is what will typically happen, right? This will, this will, this is a typical response. This is not an automatic response of the government. And that's even according to Peter, right? Because Peter knows this exoneration isn't automatic. Sometimes the government, this pagan government, they'll they'll be complicit in it too. Like, they don't want the Christian to be exonerated. And sometimes Peter says, we're going to suffer according to God's will in spite of our good works. And Peter's going to equip us for that too in just a a few chapters. But for now, I just want to point out that the pattern... What Peter's saying here is for our good works to come out into the open and silence the ignorant. So for us, what does this doing good look like? Okay? What's it look like? Well, for starters, we should aim to be good, law-abiding citizens of this country and the cities that we live in, the communities that we live in. It's not our ultimate home yet, but it is the nation of our exile. You know? Lynchburg is our Babylon, so to speak. And in the book of Jeremiah, I'm going to rewind all the way back to the Old Covenant, Prophet Jeremiah. The Lord told those original exiles, those original exiles to Babylon, that while they were there, while they were temporarily in exile in Babylon, that they should, here it is, quote, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29, 6 and 7. Now there's a lot we could say about this text and how Peter sees it connecting to our situation. But suffice it to say that even though we are in exile, we want to multiply disciples and also seek the welfare of the city. In our own context, that means we should be good citizens. We should vote because we have the right to vote. We should hold down jobs. We should create jobs when we can. We should invest in the economy as we're able to do that. We should serve our neighbors as we can and ultimately pray for them. We should be involved, in other words, in the communities we live in, even though this is not our home. We should seek the welfare of the city to use Jeremiah's language. Now let me draw one more implication from this expectation that we do good. Especially within this situation that we're in as a specifically as a constitutional republic. Okay? So in the Roman situation, the emperor was supreme. That's what Peter says here. In our situation, the constitution and the bill of rights are supreme. I'm not a civics guy. I know it gets a lot more complex than that, okay? But the constitution, the bill of rights are supreme. The only point I'm making is that according to our Constitution, doing good to the nation and being a good citizen would also include, ready for this? Doing all that we lawfully can to preserve that constitutional republic. Tracking? According to the laws of our land, so distinguish being a Christian and being an American, okay? As an American, according to the laws of our land, the Constitutional Republic, we should seek to do all we can constitutionally lawfully to preserve the republic that we're in now the key word there is lawfully talking about making appeals voting trying to influence legislation seeking to protect the citizenry from totalitarianism that is here it's not the ultimate mission so don't hear me saying don't hear me saying that i'm not i'm not discounting everything i said at the beginning right it's not the ultimate mission And we don't have any guarantees that we'll preserve it. Can we thrive as God's people under a totalitarian regime? Yes. Of course we can. But that does not mean that we don't seek to preserve what democracy we have left. That we don't seek the welfare of the city. I'm done. That's the most political you're ever going to hear me in a sermon. Like, ever. Okay? So... I think that's, that's as far out. I'll try to get as practical as I could there for that. Not done with the sermon, but done with the politics, okay? we still got a couple more points here for the sermon. All right, let's finish up this point by getting back to our case study at the border. Let's ask this question. What would do the most good to the city and to the people or to the nation if I'm ultimately seeking the welfare of those around me as I as I make my choice to submit? Make sense? Kind of applying point number three. Got to do good. Submission involves doing good. So what would do the most good in this choice? Well, on the one hand, you could argue that the immigrants benefit from a lack of razor wire, right? Like, that could be one track. Take the razor wire down, they're not going to get us hurt. And it's certainly heartbreaking to see the footage of the destitute people trying to cross a river and drowning in the river. But on the other hand, This nation has laws, and the folks trying to cross the border are doing it illegally. Then on top of that, it's making life very unsafe for the nation that they're entering. It's a national security threat that almost everyone, both sides of the aisle, recognize. And it's turning into a humanitarian crisis as the border cities are overrun with immigrants that we cannot care for or even integrate legally into our nation. So, the Christian Border Patrol officer may find some clarity when he asks the question, right, how can I do the most good for the city? Which submissive action, meaning obeying the executive branch or obeying the Texas governor, which action would do the most good for the nation in which I live? That's the purpose of the submission, right? Like, that's the point of our submitting is to do good, to benefit others in our nation. Now, this is not a loctite argument for what they should do, but I'm just I'm putting some kind of wisdom criteria on on a on a very complex decision like this. Maybe a helpful principle. Now we've got to keep moving. Okay? When it comes to obeying the government, Peter goes on to add a few caveats to this obedience. Okay? He starts rounding out his instruction. And a fourth characteristic of our submission to government is this: we can say submission is done freely as slaves of God. Submission is carried out freely, voluntarily as slaves, kind of paradoxical, as slaves of God. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Literally, living as slaves of God. So here, Peter continues to tell us how we should submit to the government. And notice he says it's not as their slaves. We don't submit to the government in fear like we're slaves to them. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We submit to them gladly and freely because we're slaves of a higher authority. So let's quickly unpack this one. All right, Peter tells us to live, or really to submit, that would probably be a better translation, to submit as people who are free. That's because he doesn't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that we are hopeless slaves of the state or in their case, hopeless slaves of the Roman Empire. It might feel like we are at times, especially as we're degrading from a free and democratic society to a more totalitarian society. And it seems there's very little we can do about it at times. It feels scary on one level, and we, like I said, should try to preserve that, that good that, we've, that we saw in the last point. But no matter what kind of regime is in power, Peter says that we are always free. Does that sink in. We're always free. And when we submit to the government, it is a voluntary submission. That's because he says at the end of this verse, we are slaves of God. We submit to evil governments not because they are worthy of our submission, but because God, our master, instructs us to. We're his slaves. We're not the state's slaves. And in fact, our God even controls the state. Solomon knew that well. Proverbs. Listen to what he wrote. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That means that for us, not one thing can happen to us apart from God's divine decree. Even Biden's heart's heart is in his hands. If we're oppressed by the state, even that is according to God's will, Peter will go into. We are his free servants, and we should obey with that kind of attitude, that kind of nobility, that kind of honor, not in self-preserving fear. Obey and submit with our heads held up. And this helps us fight the discouragement, that hopeless feeling, that self-pity and fear when we feel like we're being marginalized by the state. We're being unfairly penalized in the elections. You know, or when in days to come, the state starts taking things away from us because we follow Christ. The state may have dominion over us for a short time, but very soon we will rise from the dead and we will triumph over the state. So we submit now as people who are free, as God's slaves, because that's what we are. And Peter draws out an ethical implication from this freedom, doesn't he? What's he say? He says we shouldn't abuse the freedom that we have, by just kind of going along and sinning like we're free from all authority like we're free just to do evil we're not free from all authority that's not the kind of freedom we've received and that's not actually not freedom that's still slavery you're still slave to sin It's <laughs> not freedom Peter implies we've been free to serve free to lay our lives down in doing good free to, to pour ourselves out in acts of glad submission to the state on behalf of God that's this kind of freedom all right. Now he finishes up this paragraph, and he returns again to give us kind of a, several more instructions. You probably heard it when we read it. Bam, 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 bam. Right here at the end of the paragraph, and we can draw out our, our fifth characteristic here of how we should submit to government. So number five, we could say we should submit with an honorable attitude. A Christian submission to the government is with an honorable attitude. Heads up. I'm taking this from the first and the last commands in this list. Look again in verse 17. It says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, it helps to know, just real quick, that this list of commands is actually arranged in what's called a chiasm in biblical literature. Kind of a weird word, I know. But um, you, you can think of it as sort of a like an like a angle. Like a, a key was an X in Greek. So you take off half the X and it kind of goes like this. Kind of everything goes to the middle and then back out. Like that. Does that make sense? So in the middle, where, where the first and the last correspond and then the two middle ones correspond. That's the way a chiasm works. And the emphasis falls in the middle. It's important. We'll see that why in the last in our last point. But for now, let's just talk about the first and last commands that have to do with showing honor to two related, uh, one, one to the people and then one to the, to the king. So first he says we're to honor everybody. And in the context, especially, uh, especially here, this is in contrast with the brotherhood that he mentions next, right? So love the brotherhood, and he's saying honor everyone. So he's talking about the unbelieving people around us, the citizens of this world, if you will. Peter's calling on us to honor them, even though they oppose us even though they get on our nerves, even though they rat us out to the government when we don't worship the emperor, or even if they slander us in ignorance, we should treat them honorably. And that's convicting. If that's not all, look where he ends. He tells the church to honor the emperor. The pagan Roman emperor who persecutes Christians, who doesn't deserve any honor, who will be crushed by Christ when he returns, if he doesn't repent. This king, this emperor, should be honored. Now, when it comes to our current president, that is convicting stuff, okay? Especially when what is done is so dishonorable. It's so tempting to resent the current regime and dishonor the leaders of our country and how we speak about them and the attitudes we have toward them. That's because they engender no respect, right? Now, Mary uh, educates our kids at home, and one of the projects she's teaching in you know, history, one of the projects that her curriculum had my son do was uh, to compare and contrast the current president with the first president. <laughs> at the risk of violating this passage, um, how far we have fallen, right? It was so sad, so eye-opening to have a look at that degradation in the face of what's arguably one of the world's all-time greatest leaders um, in George Washington. He was. Uh, go look it up. Um, but honoring these guys, like even President Biden, it's not based on their honorability. We salute the badge because God has appointed them, and He's working out His purposes through President Biden was God's choice. And our attitudes need to reflect that we trust the Lord, even if you think the elect who's sovereign. Our attitudes need to reflect that we trust him. Even when we're governed by wicked leaders, how we honor or dishonor them with our speech will reveal to what extent how we honor them or dishonor them with our speech. We'll reveal to what extent. But, you might be thinking, right? But, does honoring mean we excuse their evil? What do you think? No. It doesn't mean we excuse their evil. Being a good citizen, doing good, means we've got to call it out. We have to speak to the issues. But even the way we do that can be done with honor and respect. We've got to make sure that our hearts aren't embittered toward the government. That we trust the Lord, even as we're speaking to the problems at hand. So, Key question here. How do we cultivate this honor, this attitude of honor? How do we cultivate this? Well it starts with repenting of our bitterness. We gotta own it. It's easy to get embittered at the government. It makes our lives harder. The government, that is. Bitterness does too, but <laughs> the government makes our lives harder. We fear what our kids will have to, to have to inherit. We see how much they're taking from us and what they're using using it for in our taxpayer dollars. We get angry when the economy tanks because of bad leadership. We're fearful of international wars breaking out because of the vacuum of courage. We're incensed at the deception, the doublespeak. When our leaders are simply in it for our, their own legacy, their own enrichment, hiding stuff from the public, it's very clear they're not for our good. But if we're not guarding our hearts here, if we're not confessing our unbelief that we are refusing to trust that God is working out all things according to his good purposes, then we will grow embittered and our dishonorable speech will tell on us. Our social media events, our embittered mockery. Again, not saying you can't have some fun with some satire or sarcasm, okay? Okay. There's a place for that. But watch your heart. The Lord wants us honoring even the most wicked leadership, even as we call out the wickedness, sometimes even through satire and stand for righteousness. It must be done with honor in our hearts. This was super convicting for me, helpful check, and a good catalyst for my own repentance. Repentance. And so, not just repenting of bitterness, that'd be kind of a a first step, but be careful that you're not adopting the attitudes, you know, of the talking right. You know, the Daily Wire. You guys are like, some of you are like, what is the Daily Wire? Well, I listen to them. I like those guys and ladies as much as anybody, okay? But, if we're not careful, we can start talking like them, thinking like them. Be careful. Because what you're feeding yourself, what you hear on there is often, not always, but often not honorable. It's not an honorable attitude toward the left, toward President Biden. And we have to be careful here, no matter what your political orientation is. Now, we might be coming to the end here, and, and you're wondering, all right, wow, this is a, like, you've not given one caveat, Clay. Like, you're talking about submitting to the government. With all this submission and honor talk, what do we do if the government tells us to do something God wouldn't want? Should we just submit even then? Who's writing this? Sounds like a question. Peter. What did Peter say in Acts? Yeah, fear God rather than men. Peter defied the government, his own government, the Jewish leadership. Should we submit whenever we're asked to sin? I'm certain Peter would say no. And I'm certain, not just because of Acts, but because of what's at the center of this Kiev. And that's his most important point. He tells us to love the brotherhood, so we could say that submission to the government is not, submission to government is not ultimate. As Peter ends this paragraph, he does not want us to miss the fact that in the middle of trying our best to honor an unbelieving world and the unbelieving government that we're part of, what is most important is that we love the church, and we honor everybody, yes, but love the brotherhood. kind of the idea. Honor the emperor, of course, but fear God alone. That's what Peter's getting at as he wraps up this paragraph. All four are commands. They're just kind of staccato here. All four are important, but the middle two are the most important and the most ultimate in this context. And that means then that on the rare occasion when we have to choose between honoring unbelievers or loving the church, we'll choose to love the church and offend the unbeliever. And on the rare occasion when the government tells us to defy a command of our Lord, we will choose to instead to fear God and obey him alone. We can defy honorably. We can defy nobly. But in those circumstances, as Peter himself said, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. God's word must be the steel in our backbones, the word of Christ. And we have to know it. We want to be the most submissive, the most gracious, the most self-sacrificing, yes, but when it comes to honoring our king, we will not give one inch. The laws of the land are not ultimate, and we've got to be ready to die for that. We have to know that we will be resurrected. We have to know that the tables will turn. That we will be given authority over the nations. Or we won't stand. We must know that the law of Christ is ultimate. We must know, like Revelation 15 says, that all the nations will come and worship me. So we will pray for the emperor. But we will not worship him. So these are Peter's instructions for us as exiles. For how we battle our flesh. Remember that overarching instruction? battling the flesh, Peter said. Battling the flesh and how we live nobly in relation to an oppressive government. He wants us to submit as long as we're not defying Christ. He wants us to zealously do good to those who are around us, all while we're prioritizing the love of the church. And as we do, this is hard, this isn't easy stuff, but as we do, we wrangle in that bitterness, as we repent of that, as we work on our flesh, we can trust God to accomplish all that he intends. Even more than we dare to ask or imagine. Like, we got one job. Like, just obey him. Right? We look at Israel in the history of Israel like, if you just obey, God's going to exalt you. You know? It's like, well, if we just submit to the government, he will, you know, multiply churches. We were like, ah, it's so hard, you know? He will. He will multiply us. as his church. He will multiply us right here in exile, like we saw from Jeremiah. He'll draw unbelievers to himself as we seek the welfare of the city. It'll be hard, yes. We'll, hit, we'll catch fire, yes. But we will see more churches planted right here in Babylon, and ultimately, more from the nations will glorify Christ on the day of visitation, when he returns to earth. And that is what rain then submit. Father, these words are challenging to us. And we thank you uh, that you've given us a clear word. I know we've probably not answered all the questions, and uh, we will definitely have more situations that come down the pipeline uh, probably this year, um, in this election year, that we'll be forced to think through and apply these principles. And so we pray that you give us wisdom. Um, We pray that you help us see that we are exiles here and that our kingdom is coming. And that as we seek the good of Lynchburg and of America, we lay our lives down for for those around us, that many would come to faith in Israel's king and our king. And that would be counted among us on that day because of our sacrifices and submission here in our small lives. We pray in Jesus' name.